So welcome back to the Grad Life Podcast. My name is Matthew, and on the show today I'll be speaking with Shane Curran, founder of Evervault, a data security company based in Dublin. Shane is a 21-year-old Irish entrepreneur who, after winning the BT Young Scientist competition, has gone on to secure funding for his company from the likes of Sequoia Capital and Kleiner Perkins. He has also been named on the, in the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. On the show, I speak to Shane about his journey with Evervault up to now, as well as the logistics of running a company at such a young age. So hi, Shane. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Matthew. So I've just told the listeners a bit about you there, but I, I kind of want to get into your story from the start. Um, so firstly, I'd like to ask kind of what piqued your interest in data and data protection? Uh, yeah, so it was somewhat of an organic thing. I think I've, I've always definitely had an interest in just building technology in general. Um, so I started out pretty young, uh, building websites and web apps for things I was interested in at the time. Um, and I think the one kind of, uh, you know, the sort of inspirational moment or whatever the kind of cringy term would be for kind of describing how I kind of built up an interest in data and, and encryption is um, I built a tool um, about 10 years ago for libraries to keep track of their books automatically. Um, and I released it publicly on the internet and there was about 3,000 libraries using it by the time I had to shut it down. And um, the kind of, you know, the, the shocking revelation that I discovered when I, when I had actually shipped that is that all of these random people around the world were trusting me who had kind of no experience protecting the data or no experience building kind of uh, production ready systems. Um, that they were trusting me with their data, which um, to me was very, just a, a very daunting prospect because um, I knew I didn't know what I was doing. And if I was sort of in that position, I, I was sure I wasn't the only one. Um, and I always kind of had an interest in uh, both the academic side of things as well as the kind of production commercial side of things. So like, I, I think I'm generally of the view that there's so much great technical research and, um, and sort of technological adva- advancement that exists in universities that never sees the light of day just because for whatever reason uh, it gets published in an academic paper and then um, you know never ends up being adopted by a company or, or by some other person that's developing it publicly. So um, I'd been following different fields and I think uh, one of the, the fields that's extremely popular, at least for people in technology right now, is um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And um, I thought that was cool and everything. And I, I think there's um, a lot of technical advancement happening there. But um, the biggest and most interesting piece of that whole thing is kind of the feedback cycle between academia and production. So if you look at uh, machine learning, if there's a, an academic paper published in January, by the time you know February or March comes around, there's already a full production deployment of that whole thing. And there's no real uh, rigorous sort of vetting or, or auditing process of the, the technology itself. Whereas uh, in cryptography, which is what I was also kind of studying at the time, um, that uh, that feedback cycle is closer to 25 years, which is you know obviously um, just an, an order of magnitude worse than what it is in machine learning. And admittedly, there's sort of a, a whole heap of other factors in there as well. But um, I think a, a major component is just that it's not as exciting as machine learning. Um, and so I'd basically taken that discovery and um, for the, the Young Scientist exhibition in Ireland, I'd, I'd entered that a few times. Uh, and by the time I was sort of entering for the fourth time, I, I thought it was sort of, uh, it was just sort of an interesting moment because I think this was around the time where Facebook was starting to have some issues with um, with privacy and Cambridge Analytica was becoming more was becoming more common and, and popular. Uh, so built a, a built sort of a, a product slash research project, which encompassed a lot of new technologies in cryptography and encryption and, and data security, uh, but just made them usable. So kind of applying, um, extremely simple user interfaces, like how you know, Dropbox make file storage really simple. Uh, the, the project at the time, which was called Qcrypt, made uh, encrypted file storage really simple. So you could just drop a file in, uh, the technology encrypted it and stored it around the world. So uh, it wasn't easily accessible again. Um, but uh, sort of as a, as a spinoff from that then, um, over the kind of preceding uh, you know, two, two, three years, uh, Qcrypt and the sort of 
the technology itself, but more so and more importantly, my own interest in the technology itself uh, kind of spun into a company, which is Evervault, um, which is, uh, you know, today since I since I left school and, and college is a, a real company. So, um, yeah, no, I, I haven't gone. I haven't strayed too far from that field. Yeah, no, it's amazing to see kind of like from 10 years ago, that's that's when you were kind of what? 11 12 years old when you started with with the library stuff like and you kind of you see this journey of people um trusting just randomers on the internet with their data and i, I mean like it's it's really interesting to see how, how eye-opening that is um where you're just kind of a name on this on a screen people don't really know that they're set like they can give their data to anyone like that so it, yeah it, it becomes clear i suppose how you got to qcrypt and to evervault from there um and i suppose evervault that was that started out in around 2018 then so kind of leaving search started college um and how how did you get into that and like how did how did that process start like how did and how did you balance it uh with with doing the leaving cert and starting out in college yeah i think like most young people who are interested in technology and starting companies tend to go after the more kind of um you know, glamorous fields where they'll start like a consumer social app or um you know a new social network or whatever kind of following in the footsteps of people like mark zuckerberg uh, which is why I think um, infrastructure and, and kind of low-level technology was definitely not an obvious choice for someone kind of my age. But I think um, the reason why uh, you know data security and, and privacy is becoming much more of an issue is because uh, it, it's just been grossly exacerbated by the idea that um, all of these people are building new applications itself, while the underlying infrastructure that kind of puts the building blocks in place for how to protect data and how to keep data safe, I just haven't been built just yet. So um, we don't really see ourselves as... Uh, you know, a, a sort of like a top level app or service, it's much more of a, a low level kind of um, core cr kind of critical path for you know, data in the internet itself. So as a company, our, our mission is to encrypt the web, which is extremely simple. Um, and I, you know, I, I think it was just sort of like a, a few basic principles were kind of the reason why Evervault kind of came about. Like it was in, um, I would have been in sort of sixth year in school when I started actively working on it. I'd, I'd argue that I was working on it full time during the last, um, I was about to say semester, but uh, the, the last sort of three, four months of secondary school, which um, just in definitely the hindered the um, leaving, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely hindered academic results a little bit. But um, yeah, uh, I know I, I was sitting next to you a lot of the time, so we got to plagiarize some of your homework and, and stuff every now and again. So that kind <laughs> of that rescued me a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, like I, I spent a lot of time over in, in Silicon Valley and, and San Francisco specifically in the kind of months in the run up to me finishing up school. Uh, and like, I, I just knew that this technology was there and more and more people needed to use it. Um, and I think I've always been of the view that, uh, to sort of avoid the issue of things and, and new technological advancements happening in academic papers, that I just started a company to do it. And, um, you know, because as sort of a, a deluded 18 year old, you think that, um, you know, if, if you're going to build a company, it should be the biggest possible company, which is why the sort of venture capital and, and venture backed, um, business model was most appealing to me. And, you know, I, I guess still is to a certain extent, but, um, yeah, I think the the two years after that um, were very much just kind of like laying the building blocks for you know how we think about uh, company culture and you know the types of people that we hire, um, how we make sure that we have the the trust and uh, I guess the talent that garners that trust within customers, um, and kind of getting that all that getting all of that stuff in place before kind of um, scaling up pretty significantly, which is kind of what we're up to at the moment. But um, I think our, our official sort of founding date is uh, like August 2019, which would have been. Um, you know, which would have been when we raised our, our first round of capital from U.S. investors. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't been too long since then, but yeah, we're, we're making decent progress. 
Yeah, you you touched on on kind of the venture capital and the different stages there, and I suppose it'd be really interesting to get your insight, having gone through a bit of that already, on like how does that actually come about, and like how how do how do you even get into a, a stage where you're pitching to investors like that? Uh, yeah, so th- like the good news for founders right now is that there's an extremely interesting move happening in venture capital because of um, a whole a whole series of kind of factors, but um, I think the biggest being kind of negative interest rates where all this institutional capital has nowhere to go. So it, it ends up in kind of high yield, um, I guess, asset classes and venture capital is one of the most attractive ones of those. Uh, so there's basically all these venture capital firms cropping up out of nowhere, um, raising you know, ma- massive funds, investing in you know, good founders with, or you know, great founders with good ideas. Everyone says they, they invest in great founders with great ideas, but um, you know, I, I think if everyone says it, then you know, I think it definitely tends to to trend towards the, the mean. So. Um, yeah, like uh, at, at such an early stage before you kind of have a massive amount of product traction and before you have a team in place, uh, investors are really just backing um, you as a founder or, or founders as well as the kind of market you're going after. Um, and I, I think a lot of firms will say that they invest in in TCs and, and all this sort of thing where, you know, they'll say we only invest in healthcare companies or whatever. And I think that's true to a certain extent, but um, most of it is uh, is much more simple than that. And I think it's it just sort of stems from conversations with a couple of people. So like in, in my case, I definitely went kind of more of a, a roundabout way than, than most people do. I sort of, I met over definitely over a hundred firms, probably closer to like 140 firms uh, before actually find, actually finally raising our first round of capital, which um, is definitely more than I would recommend. And is, I, I think it's definitely more than was necessary, but uh, I didn't even know that there was that many venture capital firms around um, before uh, finally kind of getting one or two offers from, from European investors and on a trip over to San Francisco at one point, I met with um, Sequoia Capital, who are kind of one of the most, uh, at least one of the, the oldest and kind of most revered firms around. Um, met with them and they kind of managed, they, they really believe in the idea. And I think um, it was it was definitely picking up a lot of traction then. So uh, yeah, ended up going at Sequoia Capital at that point. Um, the mechanics thankfully have changed a little bit more in, in favor of founders in, in the past couple of years, um, especially from a European standpoint. Like I think the, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, the advantage as an Irish person, person is that I can kind of separate myself from both Europe and the U.S. and just kind of be uh, independently um, non-European and, and non-U.S. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll be somewhat critical of European investors and say that um, they used to be very paperwork driven and uh, it was always extremely difficult to get a deal together. You know, even after getting an offer, it took another two, three months to close the whole thing. And I think in in the past, um, you know, since we raised our first round, like even in the past year, I think that's thankfully changed a lot where, um, even just the the legal sort of paperwork process is reduced down to a, a really short document called um called a safe, which is like two or three pages that um you know isn't, isn't particularly complicated and doesn't place too many restrictions on founders. Uh, but yeah, once you kind of find an investor who um who really believes in in you and, and the market, it's uh, generally a pretty organic thing. You get the paperwork together, and kind of a week later or two weeks later, you're now in a position where you have the capital and you have to actually do things, which is uh, which is definitely the hardest part. You know, everything from hiring people to, to writing code, finding customers, um, all the sort of important tenets of, of building an enduring company. Yeah, no, it's great that it is becoming more dynamic because obviously with uh, the growth and sort of ubiquity of technology now, it's companies are able to sprout out of just nothing. So it yeah, it is great to see that um, it is becoming more kind of conducive to, to founders and, and to that quick development. I suppose on that, um, and on the sort of dynamic nature of, of the market and on of the law as well, how have you found with Evervault um, 
like introduction i know you've kind of you've spoken about gdpr and ccpa before and how it can kind of be putting the cart before the horse uh, in terms of data protection um like what are your thoughts on that in terms of like keeping up with the sort of dynamic tech world how, how is data going to be properly secured um yeah like going back to the the sort of us versus eu dichotomy i think um the the biggest divergence over the last few years that I've noticed at least is that the US tends to be far more focused on kind of the, the technical approaches to keeping data safe. And maybe that stems from, you know, their, their first amendment rights and all this sort of stuff. Um, but they tend to be much more focused on encryption as a technology, whereas in Europe, it's a little bit more kind of um, reactive. And I, th I think legislation tends to come in a lot more there as uh, setting aside places like California, which is, uh, you know, effectively like the, the European union of, of the US. Um, so uh, yeah, like I, I think it's, First and foremost, I think it's good that um, in Europe, things like GDPR are coming into, into place and I guess CCPA in California as well. Uh, the biggest thing is just that for most people who are building the technologies that are causing all these controversies, like if, if you look at um, kind of the reason that this stuff came in, you know, you could argue that it was because of uh, kind of negligence on the part of Facebook or, or Google or whatever. If you go back to the founding days of Facebook and Google, um, the likelihood of you know, Mark Zuckerberg or, or Larry Page and Sergey Brin looking through all 99 articles of GDPR and actually encompassing that or incorporating that in how they how they develop their products is uh, is extremely slim. You know, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I, I highly doubt people are trying to build a product quickly and get it at the door or are kind of paying much heed to it. So um, that's why I think uh, in the US, maybe it's because sort of speed of iteration and company building is generally valued a lot higher. Uh, that's why sort of encryption is in place. And I think we're just trying to fill the fill the the, the boundary between encryption and regulation by kind of just merging the two of them together so that you just get the building blocks that you build your technology or build your app on top of um all that sort of stuff is looked after because it's you know like a lot of things in, in company building like you know accounting and, and stuff like that it's um it's generally not very company specific like most companies need the exact same version of of this of these sort of documents and i think the same goes for uh, for data security so um yeah, it's, it's a prime example of one thing that most companies shouldn't be doing, which is why we're kind of just building the underlying infrastructure itself to, to kind of plug that hole. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I don't think the regulation is going away anytime soon. Um, it's an extremely hard thing to solve with technology just because of how, how broad the regulation is itself, not only in just the wording and the way it's drafted, but just also the sort of ambition and what it tried to go after. You know, GDPR is everything from, um, you know, keeping data safe in, in databases to having a, a cookie a cookie banner and a website, which is, you know, a pretty broad sort of set of things to be integrated. So yeah, there's, there's a certain cohort of, um, of parts of GDPR that can be solved with technology, but I think uh, a lot of the other parts when it comes to, you know, having data protection officers and stuff within companies is, uh, you know, that's something that's very hard to solve without actually allocating capital and hiring people to solve, uh, to solve the problem and, and do the job itself. And I suppose, is that where you guys are looking to come in then and try to help out with that sort of data protection? Like from a very practical standpoint, I suppose, um, what is it that you guys are, are, are doing to, to help out there? Uh, yeah, so um, we basically build tools that let developers process data that's encrypted. So um, any sensitive data that they gather from customers, whether it's financial data, healthcare data, whatever, um, they can store that data without ever seeing it in plain text. Um, so we give them the tools that lets them encrypt it before it hits their infrastructure uh, at all times when they handle it. They can still do whatever they want with the data using kind of the algorithms that they develop. Uh, but we just provide the building blocks that let them kind of uh, let that processing happen in a secure environment so they never have the risk or responsibility for managing the data itself. Um, and like our, our general view on it is that um, 
like data should just never exist on encrypted. And the reason that that hasn't happened is just because the tools aren't there to actually do useful things with encrypted data. Um, and equally, like the issue, the issue isn't that data breaches happen. It's just that what does get breached is plain text data. Um, so by focusing on kind of protecting the data itself, rather than putting up these big Chinese walls around, um, you know, companies' infrastructures and, and companies' data centers and all this sort of stuff, uh, it's much easier to just make sure that the data isn't, um, you know, isn't isn't in plain text in the first place. Um, so I, like that's that's mostly what we're doing. I think the um, the regulation stuff is is great in the sense that it's getting more people to think about it, but uh, we just think it's much more fundamental than that. If the if the regulation wasn't around, we still think people should be protecting data. Uh, we still think people should be encrypting everything. Um, and even, you know, you're starting to see big company um, executives focusing on these sorts of things. And I like uh, Werner Vogels, the CTO of Amazon. Uh, he's been going around to conferences recently just with a with an encrypt everything t-shirt on. So uh, it's definitely it's, it's definitely kind of taking off a little bit. Um, but it's just it's it's traditionally just not been a very attractive people or a problem for people to solve. So, um, you know, by kind of adding a, a strong enough consumer brand and, and kind of adding that element to the whole to the equation, I think it makes it much more uh, much more attractive for um, you know, talented people to join us, even from a hiring perspective. You know, ten years ago, it just wouldn't have been an interesting thing. Everybody wanted to join the next uh, the next Facebook or or the next Snap. Well, I guess Snapchat didn't exist back then, but yeah, the, the next hot company. And I think um, you know, by by putting a, a strong brand in it, we'll be able to attract those types of people, which is what we're what we're really focusing on right now. Yeah, yeah, I think that is definitely something uh, important to note. Is that like, um everyone kind of thinks of of the Facebooks of the world and how they want to work with those. But then sort of the data processing side of that can be overlooked. And that, that's definitely a, a big hole that you guys are, are starting to fill. Yeah, like, I'll add to that and say that it, it makes sense for, uh, it makes sense that these companies shouldn't be focusing on, on data protection because it's just not what they're good at. Um, you know, there, there should be no reason for people to do better. It should just be one of those things that's looked after, you know, in the same way that, uh, sort of 15 years ago on the internet, uh, you wouldn't buy anything unless it had a, a green padlock in the top left. That's just one thing that's been abstracted away now. You know, I, have, I can't remember the last time that I saw a website that doesn't have a green padlock um, or, you know, SSL, I think, or TLS is the, the technical term for it. But, um, you know, I, I think the same thing's going to happen with just encryption for everything. So um, yeah, these things generally come in cycles. And I think we're, we're at the start of an interesting one. Yeah, no, definitely. It, it, does, it does sound like it. So then I suppose from a... Um, a 21 year old's point of view um, how does this fit in with the sort of general college lifestyle in, in Dublin how, how has that worked out for itself uh, for you um, honest answer is not very well uh, I, I think like the reality is if you um, you know if you want to build an engineering company there's a lot of sacrifices you have to make and I think uh, you know having a having a normal life is one of them I did aspire at one point to kind of have one but um, you know I think it's uh, at Jeff Bezos says you can kind of work long, hard or smart, but um, you have to pick three of them um, as opposed to just, you can't just pick two out of three. And I think, I think that's totally true. Um, so yeah, it, it's been tricky. I, I definitely tried to give it a go. I, I did go to college for, for a brief stint um, studying uh, business and law in UCD uh, for a, a very brief stint, stint, I should add. I think it was uh, single digit days. <laughs> um, very brief so yeah, days. like it's, yeah, it's a, uh, I mean, it, it's really fun. I think in, in terms of how, how that actually plays into like how we build the company itself, um, it means you just naturally have to take a, a far more long-term time horizon on talent. And I think that just implicitly means you, you, you generally have more of a bias towards hiring inexperienced people. I think part of that is just down to like the physical location as well. Like if you know, in Dublin, I think you have to have a, a longer term time horizon on talent versus a place like San Francisco, where 
um, the like tacit knowledge of, uh, of like the tech industry in Dublin is like, extremely small um, because there, there just isn't a precedent of people building enduring companies. And I think like, uh, you, you know, like the, the decisions you have to make to build an enduring company are just like a series of extremely counterintuitive things that most people don't pick up elsewhere. So although we have like, you know, a lot of technology and especially larger technology companies here, uh, the kind of counterintuitive thought processes that people have to follow just don't exist here, which is why we definitely bias towards hiring people who are less experienced and kind of, um, you know, help them think from first principles and, and kind of grow with, you know, gr help them grow and, and kind of grow with them as well versus hiring the people who kind of are a little bit more jaded. They know what they're building and they know what to do, um, which is generally what people in, in the Bay Area have the luxury of doing. But um, it, it has an advantage. And I think that's probably, you know, we, we definitely have a, a younger team, not, not intentionally, but um, it's just sort of organically happened that way. And that's probably thanks in part to, uh, to my own age, but you know, it's, it's not a major factor in, in kind of building a company. All your customers really care about is do you have a product that's extremely reliable and extremely trustworthy. So, um, yeah, that's what we focus on and age is just a, a secondary factor. Yeah, no, I get that completely. And like, I suppose again, on the, on the sort of age thing, is it, have you need, have you found it difficult knowing what to do and in terms of like just bare bones running a business, have you, did you need like, did you need any guidance with that? Or was that something you just kind of figured out as you went along? Um, yeah, no, like I, I definitely, I definitely need guidance. Although, although I think um, the the kind of shocking reality that you, you kind of discover very quickly is that um, no matter how experienced you are, like most people still don't know what they're doing. Um, so there's definitely an element of, of learning the job, no matter, learning on the job, no matter how experienced you are. So um, yeah, I, I have the, the luxury of um, yeah, having a, a couple of mentors I get to work very closely with. Um, mostly in the, in the Bay area. So, uh, you know, I work very closely with them on a regular basis and I think I picked a lot of it up that way, but, um, I think, uh, the most valuable skill that I find, I think that early, um, that sort of member team members of an early stage company kind of need to need to just totally internalize is, uh, just first principles thinking like, um, you know, you, you can either when you're, when you encounter a hard decision on, you know, whether to hire someone or whether to build this thing or whether to go this different direction or whatever, um, like, yes, you can rely on experience, but I think each piece of advice is specific to each company at each specific point in time. So, um, just being able to kind of just look at everything around you and make a decision based on like just what's in front of you, I think is way more important than kind of having the experience and having been told by someone else that this is the right way to make a decision because, um, it's, uh, it's just inefficient to kind of rely on, rely on things like that sometimes. And equally first principles thinking can be inefficient as well, but, uh, sometimes you just need to make decisions quickly. And I think that's the the thing that people don't uh, fully realize when they're when you're talking talking about high growth companies is that you know, just the speed at which these companies grow is just like totally unimaginable to, to most people you know if, uh, looking at like headcount is one factor and you know i'm not talking about us specifically but uh you know a very typical growth trajectory would be you know five to 15 people in a year and then 15 to 50 and 50 to 250 uh in each sort of consecutive year so it's uh you know even just like the just keeping everybody aligned at that scale is, is incredibly difficult, but I think that's sort of what separates the, the strong founders from the not so strong founders. Yeah, no, definitely. And I suppose, um, on that, I guess, in terms of your own growth, do you envisage that sort of level of, um, like taking staff on, do you, do you envisage the team growing that much? Uh, and like, and what will these extra people be doing? Uh, yeah, like, um, we, uh, you know, we, we've always set out with the idea of building an enduring company rather than building a, a company that, um, you know, necessarily massively scales, although those two things aren't, aren't sort of, aren't mutually exclusive. So like we much, 
what we care about the most is will this company exist in 20 to 30 years? Um, and if it does, then we, we're, we're doing a pretty good job. Uh, but equally, you know, if we want everybody to be encrypting all data, you, you kind of have to grow at a pace that's extremely uncomfortable. Uh, and although like headcount, I should probably qualify, uh, or I should probably just sort of clarify and say that um, like headcount is not uh, like a metric that you aim to increase, but it's something that, you know, if you increase headcount, obviously you can get more things done and have sort of more parallel work streams and so on. Uh, yeah, I think um, that like where our, our general kind of modeling and, and planning sort of fits in with that growth trajectory. Um, I think with, uh, to answer your question a bit, like what will those people actually do? Um, like on, on a micro level in, in terms of just hiring early team members, uh, I generally subscribe to the idea of like hiring people, not roles. Like if you hire people who are talented and ambitious and smart, they'll, um, you know, they'll figure out what to do. And I think that's, that's mostly true as long as you give them the kind of the, uh, the like macro directionality of what you're actually doing as a company, which is in some companies, it's just saying things like values and mission or whatever. Uh, for us, it's, um, you know, building the technology platform that lets people encrypt and process all sensitive data. Um, I think if you give people those boundaries to work with them, they'll, they'll do great things. Uh, but in terms of just like specialities, we're mostly hiring for uh, technical people right now. Uh, so that's software engineers, designers, um, and sort of uh, you know, computer science people with a focus on cryptography, uh, or not necessarily a focus, but at least an interest. Um, and then uh, most for US hiring then will be kind of more focused on go-to-market. So um, like we're actively hiring for uh, developer relations teams, um, as well as kind of uh, developer marketing as well. So that's what most of the most of the work in the U.S. will be for the for the time being. Yeah, uh, it's it's great to have kind of that forward vision and like the way you said that you want to focus on longer term and not just kind of exploding onto the market now and then being a, um, a story that was in ten years. Um, and. I think in doing that, like if you reflect on kind of the past couple of years, because obviously so much has happened, uh, both for yourself and and for and for the business. Um, is there anything you would have done differently, or is there anything you kind of you wish you would have known at the start that you know now? Uh, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot a lot of things. Trying to distill it down to one is is pretty tricky. Um, I think uh, definitely one of the things that like too many companies focus on is um, kind of the idea of speed before everything else. And I think that's probably just been, like, that's exemplified by Facebook's cultural value of uh, move fast and, and break things, or, or maybe it's an operating principle or whatever. Uh, I, I think that that's probably a good thing for most companies who are building like a, a consumer app or whatever. If you're building uh, encryption infrastructure like us, uh, you need to have the best encryption and the best infrastructure. So being fast and loose just isn't a isn't an answer, especially when you know real companies and, and larger companies depend on your technology being up uh, all of the time. So I think um, being, uh, to still that down, being comfortable taking longer than uh, feels comfortable to build the right version of something. Like it's perfectly fine to move a little bit slower if you know that you're gonna end up building something. Um, if, if you're gonna end up building something that's better than it would if you're moving too quickly, uh, but equally you wanna kind of build the best version of the product itself in the shortest time period. And I think that's that's always just been the, the really difficult, um, the really difficult thing to, uh, to, to reconcile it's just like how do you move quickly but also build the best version of, of something um because you know we, we could very easily have just gone out and you know grown the team to 150 by now or, or something like that uh, but that would have kind of brought a whole other set of um, set of issues with it so i think that's one part and i think also the second part is um just being it's probably it's similar to the first one but just being perfectly okay with um taking a long time to hire great people um you know so these things are generally much more 
like ideally the best people that you want to hire won't want to join your company straight away. It'll take a lot of convincing and it's probably unreasonable for them to expect that they would be, or, or for you to expect that they would be excited about your company as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, spending six months, a year, 18 months, you know, hiring great people is, is totally worth it as opposed to just sort of looking at the selection of people that you have available at this particular point in time and you're know, having to make a decision on that. Um, but you know, I, I think always, as always, these things are a lot more organic than they, than they seem. Yeah, no, I think definitely it's really important just to kind of take that extra bit of time in, in making sure that you're getting things right. Um, obviously, in, in a field like, like a startup, it's tough because obviously um, things are moving so quickly. But I mean, prioritizing, as you said, getting things right and making sure that everything, even the, the people you hire are just right at the right fit. I, I think that's so important. Uh, and that's definitely something that any anyone kind of looking to start a business should should look to do is is to get those little things right uh, and then look, focus on the big picture but not not force the big picture to look at it from a longer term perspective i think that i think that's a really good piece of advice you've given there um and i suppose finally then on that is there anything that you would like to say if it, if any advice you would like to give to someone who is not necessarily in the tech world, but who's kind of in those early stages, they've got an idea, but they might necessarily know what to do in terms of bringing it to, to a company or, or bringing it uh, into reality. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's probably going to come across as kind of the, the worst and most kind of uh, empty advice ever, but it, it's kind of just like um, being comfortable with your way of building things and your way of doing things because uh, the best companies aren't founded based on kind of like this, this tribal advice that, you know, all these other companies are giving you and you're just sort of averaging out all the advice that you get. Uh, the best companies are founded based on something extremely uh, unusual or contrarian that like one or, or two or three founders sort of believe themselves. And I think if you, if you take that approach and you have something that most people disagree with you on, and this is something that, um, you know, like one book I'd, I'd highly recommend people to read is uh, Zero to One by Blake Masters, um, which is basically... A set of uh, a set of lecture notes from a lecture by Peter Thiel, who was one of the early uh, early team members of PayPal, and uh, you know now a, an investor at Founders Fund and, and a few other things as well. Um, I think, uh, yeah, every company has to go against the grain for for quite a period of time before they become respected, uh, or at least any kind of enduring company. So, like that's generally my biggest concern with people who are you know if this is sort of a, a more Irish centric audience. I think it's very easy to rely on kind of the advice and, and knowledge of, um, of other Irish founders. And, you know, if, if, if you want to build a, a company, that's sort of an order of magnitude bigger than all the other companies that have originated from Ireland as well, then, um, you know, by definition, you shouldn't necessarily be listening to advice from other, uh, other people who are part of that kind of ecosystem or, or community. And, you know, e even looking at the, at the Bay area, like most companies in the Bay area will not be those sort of, um, those enduring success stories. So I think it's just being comfortable, not, having other people to rely on for specific pieces of advice when it comes to you know, strategy or, or product. There's certain things that it's helpful for, you know, just general management and I think hiring to a certain extent as well. Um, but uh, just being extremely comfortable uh, having everybody else around you think you're crazy and wrong. Um, I think that's probably like the, the trait that, that separates, um, you know, great founders of, you know, of, of enormous companies from, uh, you know, still very good founders of, big companies if, if that kind of distinction makes sense 
Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, that's really, really helpful, I, I imagine. Um, so I think that that rounds us off then. Uh, so th- thanks very much, Shane, again, for for coming on to the show. Um, it's It's been a pleasure having you. Uh, it's been really, really helpful. Yeah, no worries. Uh, we're, we're also hiring actively at the moment. And my email is shane at evervault.com. So if anybody, uh, if anybody wants to so join the company and encrypt the web, just let me know. <laughs> thanks very much, man. Cheers.